Commandos. The Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Say hello to my little friend. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Oh, it's a big Wednesday, midweek hump day, whatever you want to call it, but it is Sandos and the sidekick. We'll get you set up as we start to turn our gears towards the Wofford Terriers. We'll close the book on the Furman Paladins and open the door on the Wofford Terriers with our comments. We'll hear from head coach Randy Sanders in just a few minutes. We'll also talk a little uh, soccer here, second segment, right? Yeah, ETSU men's soccer. Joe Pickering's going to come on, kind of turning this Wednesday second segment into a little bit of a smorgasbord of other sports outside of football, outside of basketball. Last week, had Kayla Massey and Olivia Cunningham from volleyball this week. Joe Pickering, who's had a couple of season-ending injuries, but had a huge strike on Saturday against Georgia State. Defender, known more for his strong play at the back, comes up in the 90th minute, gets the game-tying goal. Then ETSU men's soccer last night with five seconds left, even the score against Appalachian State to take a tie there. So a bit of the cardiac kids, shall we say, are the Bucks and Joe Pickering, uh, Richard Jr., but been here four years, 2016 Southern Conference Freshman of the Year, stopping by in just about 10 minutes. All right, so we'll talk to Joe Pickering. We'll also talk to Jim Noble, play-by-play man of the Wofford Terriers, and then our stats FCS Top 25. But before that... Head coach Randy Sanders. We were trying to make the first down. When it got to the fourth down, I did consider it. Also, if, if you know you try to throw a hail mary, you get pressured, you get hit, something like that, and they get a crazy score right there for half. Now, it would have been nice to have points, but at that time, I felt like we were in pretty good shape with 30 minutes left to play. Yeah, it would have been nice to score, but I, di- I didn't want to give them opportunity either. So this is just looking back at last week a little bit, and this is not something we talked about on Monday, but I was scratching my head a little bit, and we're not ones to second-guess Randy Sanders, critique the play calling or do anything like that really on a week-in, week-out basis. It really takes a special circumstance to bring something like this up, but I was scratching my head when we got right around midfield right before the half and didn't try and chuck one down for a Hail Mary uh, to try and get in the end zone, get some points in a low-scoring game like it was and like it appeared it would be at that point the rest of the game. And with some of the momentum ETSU was carrying over from the second uh, second quarter, really the last 10 or so minutes of that quarter after Furman had jumped out to a lead, you can harness some of that and maybe get a, steal a score right before the half, changes the complexion of the game a little bit going into the second half. But then Coach Sanders, you could hear his mind was more, okay, well, this is a low-scoring game. It is nip and tuck. We don't want to give away cheap points either if something strange should happen. Still, I personally like throwing it up, just seeing what can happen if Trey Mitchell's arm can get it there from about 60 yards. And it was interesting. It seemed like if they weren't going to get the ball back, he almost seemed to me to say we were going to do that. But we were getting the ball back. I liked the way our team was playing. I didn't want to give somehow up momentum and or cheap points yeah and he did mention after that comment like five or ten seconds removed from the one you just heard that that was part of it as well that they were getting the ball after the half yeah so i i I think it was interesting um that that played into it it makes sense now i've always heard we try to double up it's another but the bucks last couple half times have been right at midfield ish and uh, have just sort of set on it to to go to the end of end of half and again now they haven't done anything crazy they haven't you know, because the worst thing you could do, number one, is turn it over and give up a score or a scenario you probably don't think about, but what if they turn it over, then you tack on like a face mask? Well, you can't end on that. What you would now be the defense, right? You can't end on that penalty if you turn over and then commit a penalty. So then you give up a field goal. I mean, there's a lot of scenarios that are very low end in the same token, completing a Hail Mary is low percentage as well. So right. I'm sure he's factoring in both of 
those and just said, you know what, let's just go to half at seven points. We're, we're right where we need to be. And they came out and actually scored. Uh, or they were down three at that time, right? What did I say? I think it was that, I think oh, I said they, seven. They yeah. were down three. Yep. So they were only down three at that time. And so they came right out of the locker room and did score and, and tied it second up. Second drive, so, yeah. Second set, drive oh, that's right. Had, yeah. It was a uh, – but still pretty still good. Still early enough where – Yeah, it, you know, but they took advantage of still having the ball, punted, got it back, and then scored, so. Interesting. I can see it both ways, but something that I at least wanted to bring up since we didn't touch on it Monday. Last year's team didn't always do its job either. Sometimes we we just got very fortunate. I told the guys going into the season, there's a whole lot of difference in playing a schedule, getting ready to play this season when you're coming off a four-win season and nobody's really expecting a lot out of you. And when you come off a season where you won a championship and they've got that game marked on their schedule. We didn't play many games last year where we were – where the fans were waiting for us to come to town or the team had us marked on the schedule ready to play. I think we've played some of those games this year. Just talking with Furman's media, their their radio people and things like that, things you heard, that this was a game they definitely had marked on their schedule as a big game. Start getting everybody's best shot, it becomes a little more difficult. Now there's a couple points there. The one that I want to make sure that we touch on is the first five or so seconds of the bike. Last year's team didn't always do its job either. Sometimes we just, we just got very fortunate. I'm not sure I've heard someone say that about last year's team, at least from the inside. Now, you can look unbiasedly and you can look kind of I mean, did impartially. We say I think we did. Okay, I'm just making sure that I, Here I thought and we, there, I mean, we, I, we, we try to be honest with you now. I there think, was some. I think we sp- referenced it and alluded to it, but I'm not sure that at any point anyone inside the program and even us i'm not sure we ever just said look the bucks are lucky you know when you win six games by combined 16 points there's an element of luck but up to this point it was you know hey veteran leadership you know moxie want to enough losing we just they wanted to win that group and it was just kind of a special group because they've been here for all that time and they just had it right they had that it quality but i'm not sure i've heard someone say they're fortunate so I, I talked to Coach Sanders on one of our road trips, and I asked him about the 97 Tennessee team and the 98 that won the championship. And he said, you know what's crazy? He said the 97 team was way more talented. It, it wasn't even close, hmm. but the 98 team was a better team. And I kind of feel like last year's team was a better team, but they're not as talented as this year's team. And, and the truth is, I think you make your own breaks, and I think VMI certainly thought, they owed ETSU something and let one slip away. They came in and, you know, retribution. I think Furman, same thing. And I think that is a huge difference. When you look at your schedule, like everybody does, like we do, we look at everybody's schedule and we go, oh, yeah, well, you know, Austin P's not very good traditionally the last few years. I mean, you just do that, right? VMI, traditionally not very good. We do it in basketball, just came out. I think I've already wrote down what I think the win-loss record is going to be already. So, I mean, I just think you do it as a fan. But what you don't factor in is the fact that well how other people see you and i think etsu you know four or five win teams since they brought it back it's about where they've been and most people treated etsu like that and then etsu was able to come through and get victories and now it's not going to be that way i think we saw when sanford decided to circle etsu on the calendar how mad they were and you can just go back and look at that score i mean we'll talk about that debacle but there are a lot of things that i think reign true that people are gearing up more towards ETSU than they have in the past. So a couple of separate points there, but both equally interesting ones, I think. I think the defense has played very well last week, really played well last week. I think they did a good job. I I think Coach Taylor, Coach Brown, and and the coaches did a great job for putting a plan together. Defense played hard. You know, we're fortunate that we we have some experienced guys, some guys that have played a lot of football over there in some critical spots, and they played well. we still got to keep working to create turnovers. Even though we had a couple last week, I think that gives us five for the season. Five through five games is not what you need. We need to try to generate some more things that way. It's all got to go together, offense, defense, and the kicking game, and we got to feed off each other. I thought we did a pretty good job of that last week. You know, defense did a good job getting off the field. Offense, maybe one, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but it may have been two, three and outs, but for the most part, was always making first downs. The offense, we got to score more points, but it wasn't off the field, defense right back on. 
kicking game stepped up, was better. We still got to do a much better job of, I think, covering punts, and we got to do a much better job of blocking for returns, punt return, kickoff return. We, we got weapons, and we can't get them going, can't get them started. But it, it all goes together. Defense played well. Offense played really good in spurts, but then couldn't finish things, and that's where obviously we got to make improvements that way. That was in response to a question I said that I'd ask Monday on Santos and the sidekick going into that press conference. Can the defense possibly do any more, or are they doing everything they can? And Coach kind of skirted around that, just said, look, it all goes together. My question to you, do you think that Coach is being a bit too light on the offense? I think um... – I don't know he's being too light. I, I think he. I, I think there are certain – the defense is doing what you expected, right? I think you sort of knew the offense was going to take longer. Uh, and I know you look at the line, you look at the running backs, you go, well, I mean, you got all that. But the quarterback, you know, you still have a lot of question marks. You're still going with – coach's words, not mine, a, a guy that's your third-string guy. Um, there's still a lot of question marks at receiver. I mean, a guy you were going to rely on a lot, Brasson Rick, Richburg, hadn't even been on the field the right. last couple of games. I mean, so I, I think he knows that it was going to be a slow process with offense, and so I think there's only so much you can expect. Trying of that. to stay positive about it, maybe, I, and, and just... there could be. You don't know how you know fragile some of a couple of those young guys are, you know, and, and trying to keep them going. And, you know, to be honest with you, if you look at this, this comments from a year ago, you know, he's overcritical of Austin Herrick, but Austin Herrick was got played 40 games. He could take it. You know, he's not very overcritical of Trey Mitchell in some of the same situations. And I read into that and just really talking to Matt Wilgham, our color analyst off air a lot is he thinks, you know, it is. He's a redshirt sophomore. He's not played that many games. I mean, they need – somebody's got to take snaps. You can't try to break their will. I, I think he clearly behind closed doors is hammering some of the offense on that. I think outwardly he's trying to tell everybody, you know, look, this is a process like he always says. This, but I think he's right. I think your biggest question mark was going to be offense, was going to be maybe some of the kicking game things. I think defense – you know, I think the one of his post game comments where he talked about the defense trying to get off the field more. Now that I think was emotional, and I think we talked about that on Monday. Was, you know, he goes back and watches the film and he does some things like like that's probably how he's not going to feel about that. And he was and, left with that final drive. Where that's got exactly the right, and that's always in his mind was earlier. was they, they converted those last two third downs, right. and that's what he was thinking. So uh, I I think everyone sort of knows. I don't think he has to harp on it, but I think yeah, I think. He's being with kid gloves a little bit with it outwardly for the simple reason of I think there are some fragile things there. And you're probably right. And if that is the case, it's brilliant. You know, it's smart that he's doing that because, as you said, redshirt freshman quarterback, still learning how to be a college quarterback, doesn't have 40 starts under his belt. Some receivers outside that he was maybe critical of last year, and now there's some more that have come in, but there's the quarterback issue. So can you really go heavy on them? And so, yeah, I think there is some. There's a lot of thinking and a lot of thought and a, a process here that I think Coach goes through from year to year. He's not going to treat every situation the same because you can as a coach, right? And so it is smart if that is indeed what is going on. Yeah, I, 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 I think he's handling well. I, and I think I think we said so much um, Monday during the show before the press conference. When he goes back and watches the film, uh, you know, he always has a different take than what we did. And I think that bite exactly exemplified looking back at You know what the defense did? other than maybe we want some more turnovers. And I think his more point was five and five games, not necessarily right. that game. They right. had two turnovers. But I think they need more turnovers. And I think he hasn't touched a whole lot on the offensive turnovers because he's one of those guys that he didn't want to harp on the offense turnover for simple reason. He doesn't want it in their head that they're turning it over. So if that helps you. Did I clear as mud? I clear that up for you? Clear as mud. Well All done. Right. I, yeah. I like that. Yeah, I've never heard like that before. All right, there we go. All right, now next segment we're going to uh, talk a little Joe Pickering, right? UTSC men's soccer. All right, we'll talk to him right after this timeout from San Jose Sidekick on the Air Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge. New name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com.
Daniels on the sidekick, Jay steps aside, and Joe Pickering is here from ETSU Men's Soccer. And as we talked about in the first segment, kind of trying to turn this Wednesday second segment into a time to highlight some of the best athletes on campus. And by all accounts, Joe Pickering is one of those. Redshirt junior defender, Southern Conference freshman of the year in 2016. Ran into some injury issues back here in 2019 as a redshirt junior and just won the Southern Conference Defensive Player of the Week award for this past week. Couple of clean sheets against High Point and Presbyterian and then a uh, thunderous 90th minute goal against Georgia State on Saturday to even the score there, send the Bucks to overtime. They've gotten back-to-back ties, not in the way that you would, I think, draw it up if you're ETSU having to come from behind late, but dramatic and certainly entertaining uh, soccer on the pitch right now from the Bucks. and Joe Pickering is part of that. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. I'm uh, excited to talk with you and just hear some more about not only uh, your journey here so far at ETSU, what led you to being a buck, uh, a number of things, Joe. But first, I want to know about that strike that you made in the 90th minute on Saturday. Is that about <laughs> as clean of a contact as you made on a strike offensively? You're known for your defending, but you've got something on the offensive end, too. I, I don't think I could ever do that again if I tried. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little flick on in the middle of the box, and then you were about 15 or so yards out and just tucked it right next to the keeper. That tied it. Talk about the energy on the pitch at that moment. Oh, it was... It was something I've never experienced before. Just coming back with six minutes ago, you're 2 0 down. You know, most teams in the country probably at that point think the game's done, but you know we believe that we've always got a chance if there's time on the clock. And you follow that up with last night going to Appalachian State. It's 1 0 going to the 90th minute, and Gilly Miller. Uh, someone that's a newcomer for ETSU in your squad, one of the many newcomers on this team this year with 10 seconds left. Uh, they marked it down as five seconds officially in the scorebook, but you said 10 seconds were left when he scored that tying goal to send you to overtime. Talk about that one. I'm going to be a, a better strike than mine as well. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was good. And you know, same again, like with 10 seconds left, you still, we got the ball in the box. You still think we got a chance to score. And yeah, we've taken our chances. And yeah, it's just, it's it was really about what, we're looking for in this team you know, we just always got that fight to you know keep pushing to the end where does uh this two-game stretch these couple of comebacks rank in terms of just excitement and unlikeliness back-to-back games of being able to come out and take results from that you don't get the wins but you get the ties undefeated in your last four uh have you seen something like this in back-to-back games before? <laughs> to, to score two goals in the last minute in, in two games in a row is very very unheard of so it's it's, it's good to be a part of that and yeah, it's something we can always take on to the next couple of games as well. Like you always got, we've always got a shot, you know? And certainly a couple of big games are coming up. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to know about your career here, Joe. And there's a lot of Englishmen on this team. You've got, I believe, five other countrymen on this roster this yep. year. You've had a couple as well with you, uh, originally from uh, East Sussex. Is that right, in England? Mm-hmm. Yeah. East Sussex, England. So you came over um, in 2016 for that first season. What led you to coming to ETSU? It's a side that's really heavy with international players and collegiate soccer in general I think on both the men's and the women's side you'll see a lot uh, internationally coming over to play their collegiate soccer in the U.S. Uh, why do you think that is and for you specifically why did you make that choice? I mean to, to be honest I never actually heard of Johnson City when I first came in so I kind of it was a new experience to me and you know I, I, I looked it up obviously and it, it looked very appealing to me the facilities here are fantastic you know from what I was talking to the coaches at the time the culture is good and there was something I was looking for is someone we could work hard as a team and you know achieve achieve good things together. And I think we've done that since I've been here. You're the SoCon freshman of the year in 2016. Take us through those next two years. What happened? It seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> it, it was it was a tough two years for sure. Uh, obviously, injuries holding me back. A hip surgery was it was tough to take in at the time. And you know, but I think I just kind of knuckled down, put my head down, and you know, did all I could do to try and get back on the pitch. And it's obviously paid off now being back on the pitch tell us about those two injuries the first one the second one related unrelated and how you dealt with each of them I mean they were both both hip injuries so it took the reason it took a long time to diagnose what it actually was because it was quite it wasn't a very common hip injury so it took a long time to diagnose and then obviously the surgery so I, I missed the whole sophomore year and came back late in the in my junior year so it, it was tough for sure but you know I'm here now, and that's the main thing. What was recovery like? Was it the same hip? Was it different hips? Was it one of those overcompensation things where you had the injury on one and then the other was injured, or, or how did that work? It, same hip, same hip, yeah, yeah. So it just took a, it was a long time. It was a long, a long year on the side, watching training every day, which was you know not fun. Watching it every single day you can get a, just want to be out there, you know, want to be out there with the boys working hard. But yeah, it like I said, we, we got for it. I'm happy it's over. Hopefully, it won't happen again. <laughs> 
Patrick Good is someone we had on uh, about two or three weeks ago. He had a hip injury where he told us that it was just tough to get out of bed in the morning. And obviously walking around, he was on crutches for, I think he said, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. Like the, the very basic necessities that you take for granted as a mm-hmm. human being are taken from you because that is such, you don't realize it, but such a vital area. And hip injuries aren't very common. And it sounds like yours specifically was extremely uncommon. Uh, what was recovery like? Did it take that kind of timetable? Was it just long and arduous? Yeah, yeah, it's for sure. Like. Yeah, the simple thing, everything you do is kind of your hips. So even getting up in the morning, you can feel it. You know, walking around, you, you kind of forget how, yeah, forget how nice it's just to be able to walk around when you're on the crutches for so long. And so it, it was tough. It was, it was. So, but yeah, it is what it is, isn't it? What, uh, what kind of time frame was it from surgery to getting back to just very basic soccer activities just like kicking the ball. I'm not talking running up and down the pitch running side to side in the back four and trying to keep people from scoring goals or going into the 18 yard box and getting game time strikes in the 90th minute but just to be able to kick a ball just to do light jogs what was the time frame from surgery to that I think it was about three or four months before wow. I could actually kick a ball again wow. yeah so it was a it was a long <laughs> a long road to recovery is that about as long of a time that you've had in your life of not playing oh, soccer? yeah for sure for sure I've come in and I've never really been very injury prone and I've come in and had that. So it's quite a shock. <laughs> what, uh, now that you're back, what kept you fighting to get back on the pitch? You know, there's some people, I think it takes a, more of maybe a mental toughness than a physical toughness to go in every day, do your rehab, be patient and have that goal in mind of coming back and making a difference for your team. Some people just give up. They, they don't come back mm-hmm. and it's too much for them. But especially with back-to-back years, you have come back and made a real difference for this team already. It's a loaded back line that we'll talk about in just a second with all the experience you have uh, at the defensive backfield. Uh, but what kept you pushing, fighting, with that goal in mind of coming back and being a buck again on the field? Uh, for me, that's what it's all about, just the, the end goal, you know, visualizing being back on the pitch in the end, you know, knowing that times are going to get better. But remembering the good times from before and thinking, you know, how can we push on and get back to where that was before? What's this team like compared to the other ones you've had in the past? Now, of course, in the last two years, it's been a bit different where you haven't been able to be on the field. But, you know, the 2016 team, since you've been here, the program's had tons of success. The 2016 team, you were out there. Then 2017 and 18, you play a little bit of a different role. But you're still around the guys a lot. You're still um, with your teammates in whatever capacity that you can be. So what's it been like this year versus the previous years? I think we have a I think we have a special team this year. It's, a, it's obviously a young bunch. We have a lot of freshmen, a lot of incomers this year. So it took a little while to gel at the start, but I think the energy's been good. You know, I think this is the, the closest bunch we've had since I've been here. Now everyone's kind of there's not really too many clicks. You know, we're all tied together a lot, which is good. Oh uh, yeah, we've obviously had a lot of success in years past. So that's going to be the challenge now for this group is can we repeat those successes we've had before. What's it like having five countrymen on your team? That's got to be kind of cool. Nice. I, I, yeah, I think you've had, I think it was two each of the previous three years, or maybe it was three and then two and then two going back to 2016. But having five now, I mean, you say you don't have clicks, but it's got to be kind of cool to just be able to talk about home with those guys. Uh, sure, yeah, for sure. And it helps keep the accent a bit longer as well. <laughs> <laughs> you're clearly not losing that, I don't think. Um, this year now, you're, you're looking at you know results over the last four of you know two wins, two ties, and you're coming up with, a run of play, which is going to be uh, difficult. I Tough mean, you got of games, yeah. yeah. Kentucky this Saturday, which is a perennial top ten program in the country. You got North Carolina State, then Davidson, VMI. All these are on the road too. So aside from the Kentucky game coming this Saturday, um, it's going to be a gold out at Summers Taylor Stadium. Seven thirty is kickoff. So make sure that you make your way out there um, after ETSU football as well. It's just a what couple hundred foot walk over from the football stadium. There will be eight or nine thousand there to take in the Wofford game. All you do is walk right down, and men's soccer will be kicking off right as. ETSU football is need finished, the support. You know. Yeah, yeah. Get, uh, you need the support against a Kentucky team, and just having those stands full, I think, is. I'm sure on the pitch, it, you feel that energy. Uh, I feel it up in the box when I'm calling your games. It's just so much more fun to be out there, and of course, you take every game the same, right? You go out and you have a job to yeah, do, but like, yeah. just being at the stadium when those stands are full, it really does make a difference in terms of atmosphere. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can hear the crowd when they get going, and it does make a big difference. So. Especially to have a lot of people there. I, I, I'm sure you can definitely hear it after that strike against <laughs> Georgia State. Um, so you've got those on the road, uh, North Carolina State, Davidson, VMI. Then your last four conference matches, Mercer, UNCG, Belmont, and Wofford before the SOCON tournament. So this month of soccer that you're going to be playing, 
Uh, clearly, you can hear some of the names that we just rattled off. Conference play is always important. This is about as important of a run, I think, for an ETSU men's soccer team as there's been in the last few years since you've been here. Yeah, this is, this is the big – this is where the season defined it. Yeah, we either make it or break it. Yeah, we've had – We've had our time now to kind of bond in jail. So this is a time where we had to prove that we're good enough now. We can take it to that next level. I've got a question for you that's probably going to throw you off guard, but is this your last go-around? You're a redshirt junior now here. One month of collegiate soccer left. You've got the NCAAs, you know, coming up, Southern Conference Tournament coming up. You hope to make that go as long as you can with this season and make a run into nationals. But you're a redshirt junior. Uh, you've got four years now, if you include this year, of academics under your belt. Um I think it's a pretty common thing. We've seen a number of athletes here at ETSU and just around the country. If they do have some injuries, if they do have that fifth year of eligibility, which you would have, they maybe go and start a grad program elsewhere. Um, I think Johnny Sutherland uh, was someone that, I don't know if that was his fifth year, but I know he went to Clemson yeah, after yeah, he yeah. was here, so did a similar thing. Carly Litton from women's basketball did that, transferred to LaSalle this year. She was a red shirt. She had, I think hers was a hip injury too. Hip injuries are just chronic around <laughs> here, it seems like. But uh, she goes to LaSalle <laughs> this year for her red shirt senior season, quote unquote, or grad year. Uh, and maybe you don't know yet. Maybe that's the answer, but... Um, I'm sure there's a lot of thought that goes into a decision like that. Maybe you haven't gotten there. Maybe you have. Where are you at with that process? It's, it's definitely won't be my last year. Yeah, I don't think I've fully had the four years, obviously, because there's two injuries. So I definitely want to take that last year and enjoy enjoy my time here. That's good to hear. Uh, the emotions of just this past month, month and a half, being able to get on the pitch and having it kind of culminate with that goal against Georgia State, uh, for me, that's the moment and you do a lot of unheralded work at the back. You know, defenders aren't going to get the uh, the glory that the people up front do, the Hauk-Andreas Fossens on this team, the Matias Unistads, um, and the bevy of really attacking options you have. Uh, you really have to talk to some soccer people, people inside mm -hmm. the game that look yeah. and say, that guy's a stud. And David Casper has told us that a number of times about you. But you have to talk to people that really get soccer to say, okay, a defender, what makes him good? They know that about you. So for me, the moment where Joe Pickering was – announced back on the scene was that goal against Georgia State, uh, at least to the average layman soccer fan. What were the emotions like at that goal, at that time, and just being able to get back on the pitch? I mean, like you said, that's part, part of being a defender. You know, you're not going to get all the all the credit that the strikers get, but, you know, that's that's all right. Um, I mean, the emotions, I don't, know, I don't know how to describe the emotions that were going through my head when I scored that goal. <laughs> it was doesn't happen very often when I score, so you got to kind of enjoy it when you do. So it was it was good, yeah. Like I said, it was just it was, I don't know. It's hard to describe. You scored a decent amount your freshman year, and then I think the one game you played in 2017, you scored as well. I did, yeah, against Kentucky. I hope I can repeat that this weekend. I was gonna say, I'm <laughs> sure that's a great memory that you have from from that game. And if you can repeat it this weekend, that'll give the Bucks a great shot. I was looking through the stats and thinking, okay, this has got to be like you know first goal since 2016. What a great stat that would be. And then I look at him like, okay, well he didn't score his junior year, but of course the one game your sophomore year, you, you did score. It's quite against a good goals to game ratio lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this weekend, it's Kentucky, 7.30. His uh, kickoff at Summers-Taylor Stadium. Huge contest, of course, that is your coach, David Casper's previous coaching stop. Uh, before you go, Bo, Bo Shani versus David Casper. Similarities, differences, what do we got? Uh, they're, they're pretty similar. Quite, you know, we play similar formation now, so it's very similar in that sense. Um, it's a tough one. You know, they're both very good coaches. They both have, you have their pros and cons, you know, so... But I'm enjoying I'm enjoying David Casper as a head coach now, for sure. I, I'm sure he would enjoy getting a victory over his former team this oh, Saturday. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Again, 7.30 is kickoff. Joe Pickering and ETSU men's soccer against the University of Kentucky. I think they ended up losing last year to the eventual national champion. Maryland, was it? Is that yeah, right? Yeah. If memory serves, they lost to Maryland in like the Sweet 16 or Elite 8, whatever it may have been. So it's a very good side coming in. ETSU can use all the support that you can provide. 7.30 kickoff. It's a gold out. Make sure to wear your gold. Joe Pickering will be there. So will the Bucks, hoping to get that victory. Thanks for stopping by, Joe. Thank you very much. Joe Pickering, redshirt junior defender, 2016 Southern Conference Freshman of the Year, the 2019 Southern Conference Defensive Player of the Week from this last week. And again, see him this Saturday at Summers Taylor Stadium. I'm Mike Gallagher. When we are back, it is play-by-play -play man Jim Noble from Wofford here on Santos and the Sidekick. Buccaneer Sports Network.
Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty, naughty and nice, hot and cold. Well, add instant and jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Sandos and the sidekick back with you. Third segment on this Wednesday as we get you ready for Wofford and ETSU this weekend in Southern Conference football action. Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, and pleased to be joined by the voice of the Wofford Terriers, Jim Noble. And Jim, we appreciate you taking the time. And this is the only team, I don't know if you know this fact yet, this is the only team ETSU has not beaten since the return of football. And they would like to change that on Saturday. But this is a Wofford Terrier team that has started to figure itself out offensively. Well, I'm glad they've started to figure it out, guys, because I don't know that we have yet. It's it's been a really interesting first month of the season, man. And, and like you were saying, I think I think hopes were really high, maybe artificially high, with a top ten, you know, national ranking, and, and and things went south of the hurry. The first two games with losses at South Carolina State, and then a a really close loss against Sanford at Wofford. So we're not really sure what kind of Terrier team comes to town. I mean, you know, Gardner-Webb, BMI, nothing against them, but the step up in competition for Wofford this weekend is, is the thing that's really got everybody intrigued uh, around our parks. Well, I, I think it's interesting. I'm curious. On the South Carolina State game, I, I didn't get a chance to see any of it. But I was curious to see uh, your thoughts, because obviously you called it, uh, about the number of passes that were attempted. I know Coach Conklin has been very open about he would love to move the offense forward and, and uh, more balanced. Now, I don't know if he you know, wanted to chunk it around as much as did, if situation happened that way, if they wanted to try it out, um, or what went into that first game. Because since then, it seems like it's the uh, Wofford of old where it's about 90% rush game. Yeah, my theory is, and, you know, this is just my theory. We didn't get it for anybody with a coaching staff or anything, but I think they kind of looked at that South Carolina State opener almost like a preseason game. Let's try something. Let's, let's, let's see if we can throw the ball a lot more in the past. They threw it 18 times in the first half alone. That's otherworldly for Wofford. And it didn't work. It, it, it didn't work. And by, by the time that they got back to – like you say, Wofford football, that game was out of hand. And, and South Carolina State, I think we're learning, A, that they're a much better team than we thought, and B, Wofford probably took them lightly. South Carolina State dominated them physically. It was a stunner. It really was. So the next week against Stanford, they go back, and like it was almost the opposite extreme. Wofford only threw it six times against Stanford and had four drives of, of over eight minutes. Only two of them ended in touchdowns, though. And the last one, the, the drive that they fell short on at the end of the game was a 17-play, 11-minute drive that that ended on the five-yard line on, on, on fourth, and, fourth and goal. And you could take a lot of positives from that, but you still lost the Southern Conference opener at home. So you're right. The last couple of games against Gardner-Webb and VMI, it's been, it hasn't been pure option. They certainly have a lot more plays and it will hit you up top with a pass if you try to load up on the run so they're still rolling up the numbers that you're you're familiar with in years past it's just that they're doing it in a little different way speaking of years past jim it seems like the wofford teams of old would have punched in that drive you mentioned i looked at the box score myself after and saw 21 14 sanford i think a lot of people around the conference were a little bit surprised because they didn't know what Sanford was going to be this year. It was the offense last year just Devlin Hodges? Uh, I think a few at least around the league said that's probably Wofford's game to lose. And I think in years past, perhaps that last drive that they fell short on, they punch in. What's been the difference this year in not getting those uh, last-ditch efforts to be able to get that tying score, go to OT, win it, pull out the games in the end? You know, I think at that point, the quarterback play was pretty inconsistent. Joe Newman, who's the starter, um, Joe wasn't making the best decisions at the line of scrimmage. You know, the, the pitch game, the option pitch game, which which was 
so hard to defend that for whatever reason the timing wasn't there on the corner. Maybe because they're trying to do that out of some different formations. And it's funny, the last time it hasn't really looked good was that drive that you speak of, that final drive against Sanford. Since then, you know, they've, they've got a, a, a veteran offensive line. All five starters returned this, this year. They sort of took it upon themselves to say, hey, you know, I think we need to have a little bit more attention to detail. Newman's made much better decisions at the line of scrimmage. Again, how much of that is Wofford coming together finally after three or four games, and how much is of that is fairly weak defenses with Gardner-Webb and BMI? That's the one thing we don't know. The scary thing for Wofford, of course, is ETSU, A, you guys have a good defense anyway, B, all those guys returning on defense, some of the guys that were hurt earlier in the year, this is going to be Whopper's biggest test, no doubt, defensively. It is pretty crazy to see. You go from the passing, I think it was 23 attempts that first game, no more than eight either of the last three games, but the running attack has been so good. Uh, even if Josh Conklin did want to throw it, I'm not sure that it would be a good idea to. 344 yards per game. Now, if the season ended today, which of course it doesn't, and just getting into conference play a little more thoroughly over the next five or six weeks, of course we know defenses are going to be a bit more stout, but that's the most right now since 2012 for the Terriers. And I think some... Looking at the backs that they lost, Lennox McAfee and Andre Stoddard were saying maybe the running game will take a step back. But as you said, those five returners up front, they're the ones really setting the pace, correct? Yeah, and, and the crazy thing is, despite all the angst about throwing the ball too much earlier in the year and, and, and all that, they're actually, like you mentioned, running at a higher clip than they were last year when they averaged 311 yards rushing a game. They're, they're well above that right now. Um, they're only throwing the ball, like you said, you know, six, seven times a game tops. But the one thing they're doing is they're hitting those plays. They're hitting those long passes. They had two long passes against VMI. It, it, it's just kind of a stopgap. It's kind of like, okay, you're going to creep up. You're going to put eight guys in the box. Boom, we're either going to try one or we might hit one. But, yeah, they're, they're not going to live and die by the pass. One thing they are doing a lot on the ground, and anybody who watches Whopper game will, will, will notice this, they're doing a lot more with the wide receivers in the running game. Jet sweep, all of a sudden, has turned into Wofford's favorite play. It's been very, very effective. They've got fast guys. If they can get the ball in the, into their hands in space, like Demore Van Cleve, T.J. Luther, that has been a, a different dimension to the running game, and I think you're seeing a lot of teams seeing that on film, having to honor that now and it's opening up the middle now. And Jay, something a little different as well for Wofford this year. Joe Newman's running the ball a lot more, 101 yards per game on the ground. He I mean, is, and I think that goes back to what I'm saying with the, the better decisions at the line of scrimmage. He, uh, when Joe can just, you know, plant his foot and cut up the field and not overthink the option, that's when he's best. Now, obviously, if they're going to crash down on the quarterback, he can pitch it out there. But but the quarterback keeper. That's always, you know, the, you always joke about the triple option. Stop the fullback dive first, stop the quarterback second, stop the, stop the pitch man third. I, I think for Wofford, it's, it, it's reverse. I think stopping the quarterback keeper is, is job one. Joe's been really good running the ball after, look, a really frustrating opener at South Carolina State. He sort of settled down, and maybe that's part of being a senior, knowing that there was a lot of football left to be played. We're talking to Jim Noble, play-by-play man, Wofford Terriers, Bucks and Terriers, 3.30 kick uh, Saturday, Green Stadium, 2 o'clock pregame show here on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Jim, I want to flip to the defensive side of the ball because there have been some very unlike Wofford numbers, and generally speaking, the defensive line for Wofford has always been very menacing. They've uh, you know, put up gaudy numbers, uh, and I know they had a lot of tackles for a loss against VMI this last week, but... They're missing a couple of guys that were going to be, I think, penciled in starters and seek significant playing time. Has that hurt Wofford and how they've given up so many yards uh, uh, as far as the defense giving up so many yards? Because that's the one thing that was always constant. You knew, A, they were going to get a lot of yards on the ground, but you also know that it was going to be very difficult to move that front three of the Wofford Terriers. Yeah, most definitely. That's been the biggest kind of uh, Achilles heel, if you will, for the, for the defense. And you look at who they lost. You lose Miles Brown, the, the the senior nose tackle last year, who's now playing on Sundays in the NFL with the Arizona Cardinals. That's one loss. And then you had two other defensive linemen last year who were getting attention from NFL scouts, Mikel Horton and Thad Mangum. Um, 
important. They were a little bit more mobile than Miles and could rush the passer a little bit better. But they were, you know, like junior and senior, 280, 290 pounds on that line. And they both went out with season-ending injuries, one before the season even began, the other right after the South Carolina State game. And now you're replacing them essentially with two freshmen, Michael Mason, a redshirt freshman, Tanner Barnes, a redshirt freshman. They come off the edge at 215 pounds and 230 pounds, respectively. So that's a lot of beef, first of all, (laughs) that you're missing up front. They're trying to do some different things with the linebackers. They're probably run blitzing a little bit more with linebackers. They're actually more aggressive on defense. And, And I think that's to try to make up for the loss of just those big, stout, solid guys on the defensive line that you don't have anymore. But you lose, you know, three guys who at least had NFL aspirations from last year on on a three-man defensive line, that's going to hurt. I I think the one thing that does help is the back-end secondary, and and even a couple of linebackers, and I know they're not brothers, always make a joke about the Wilson brothers, D.T. Wilson and uh, (laughs) Jareel Wilson. Um, But uh, George Bisi always seems to be a thorn in ETSU's side. And then, of course, probably I I think one of the best strong safeties in the league in Mason Allstott. Then you throw in uh, Demetri Redwood, who's a senior. You got Darren Pascal, who's a junior. So you got four guys, and a lot of those names I recognize because they've been on the field. So the back ends there, it just seems like if teams have had success, and and it's really been – you know, sort of getting that ground game going. And I know ETSU, just looking back at the numbers, heck, I look back to a few years ago, ETSU had negative seven yards rushing uh, against Wofford, didn't cross midfield. Uh, and and last year, you know, honestly, if there wasn't a, a, a fumble in the end zone with, with really a, a guy that I know you rely heavily on uh, this season to carry the ball, Nathan Walker, I don't know what he was trying to do, trying to pitch it back or whatever he was yeah. doing, but, but <laughs> sort of gave away a touchdown, and I think it was another turnover ETSU cashed in on. Otherwise, the offensive numbers weren't there again last year because of that defensive front. So I think that's the most shocking thing when I've watched a, a couple of games. I've watched a little bit of Gardner-Webb and, and VMI uh, on tape just because it's the last couple of games, just try to get familiar with things. But I think the, the linebackers and secondary are certainly still there. It's just shocking, I guess, not seeing those big-bodied – defensive lineman yeah it's gonna be you you will definitely notice uh when you watch on saturday afternoon you'll 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 definitely it doesn't seem like things are clogged up in that you know between the tackle box you know you see a lot more motion from from wofford you see a lot more uh stunts you see a lot more blitzes and things like that and and like i said before i think that's out of necessity you have to you almost have to kind of cover up i think those redshirt freshman defensive linemen are going to be good. I think they could bulk up to the point. I think Mason probably has a frame where he could get up to maybe 260, 270 at some point. Barnes is more of a speed guy. He's almost like a really tall linebacker instead of a defensive end. Um, they're both really talented. They're just both really young. And, and, you know, sometimes the responsibilities, you know, setting the edge, that's, you know, freshmen make mistakes. It, it, it just happens that way. So I, I do think it's going to look a lot different to ETSU fans on Saturday who have used to be seeing, you know, Wofford, like you say, just kind of clog up the middle with their with their big defensive linemen. So it'll be interesting because, you know, I think ETSU, I, I, I've, I've been watching bits and pieces of the Furman game from last week. And that was just a – that was a physical – physical battle as you guys know and I, I, I'm wondering about the line of scrimmage and the physicality aspect and whether Wofford can match up with the Bucks in that aspect of the game Let's, uh, we're talking Jim Noble play by play man Wofford Terriers last thing I got for you Jim uh, special team certainly you have a senior in uh, Luke Carter it kind of does a little bit of everything just talk about special teams so far this season for the Terriers yeah, please don't jinx Luke Carter. Um, I'm afraid to say on the air now, every time he attempts an extra point, because I think he's kicked 107 in a row now, never missed one in college. So every time I, I, I start to go down that road, my uh, my color guy, Tom Henson, cringes and punches me and says, you know, don't jinx it, things like that. But he's been rock solid. You know, he also handles the punting, too. So he's sort of that dual threat senior you never really have to worry about. Um Wofford's return game is a little bit better than it's been the last last couple of years. Um, you know they're not. You know, I don't return a ton of kicks because of the the, the touchback rule and Conklin. If there's any doubt, he wants those guys to, to 
to take the touchback of 25-yard line. But punt returns. Demore Van Cleve, who I mentioned before, he's a former Mr. Kentucky high school football, all of five foot seven and 155 pounds. But man, he is fast, and he's sort of taken over the punt return duties and, and has broken a couple long ones this year. And T.J. Luther, the wide receiver can get back there as well their their return game is great the one thing that's really worrying the Wofford coaches right now is kickoff coverage they did not look good against BMI BMI's average start was something like the 37 yard line uh last weekend and that has been a major point of emphasis uh the kickoff coverage has to get better to the point that they may move uh quite a few defensive starters on the special teams this weekend to try to cover that up a little bit. Jim, last one from me as well. Talked with head coach Randy Sanders in our Monday press conference here about this being a must win. And of course he gave the old uh, coach speak. Well, it's always a must win. If you want to meet my goals, you know, I want to win every one, you don't just ever say go out. No, we can drop this one. How do you feel the sentiment exists on the side of Wofford in terms of a must win? Do you think with all this football still to come and two losses already on the slate, they're looking at it the same way? You know, it's funny. They won't say that. I, I think when you, if you, you know, gave somebody a lie detector test, called it a bus win. Yeah. But you know what? You, just like you say, you don't want to put too much emphasis on that because I think the fan base looked at the Sanford game as a must win. After that horrible performance in the opener, they thought, okay, we have a conference opener at home. And we, gosh, we got to win this. We can't go 0 2. And they lost it. It was a good ball game. It was close, but they lost it. And then, of course, you sit back and go, okay, what are our goals this year? If your primary goal is the Southern Conference, then, yeah, uh, you know, you can – I don't know. My gut feeling is that 6-2, that and two, which won the conference last year for a co-championship, I don't know that 6-2 and two is going to get it done this year. Uh, for some reason, I have a feeling that I don't know that I see Furman stumbling twice uh, in conference, uh, especially now that they've gotten past ETSU. I, I think Sanford, you know, maybe if they can, I think that it would be an upset if they beat Furman this weekend. And if Sanford beats Furman, could they run the table in the conference? I think they're capable of doing it. Uh, so from a Wofford standpoint, it might be a must, must win. I, I don't think with the, you know, that I, I think that South Carolina state loss is going to hurt you. If you're, if you're talking for at large mids down the road, if you don't, you get the automatic bid out of the Southern Conference. And obviously where ETSU is coming from, you guys have talked about it, you know, with, with the two conference losses already. I don't think it's out of the realm of the of possibility to put this one in the must-win category for either team. I know, and that's how we feel about it, too, and that's why Mike asked the question. That's why we thought we'd get a straight answer from you. We're going to talk to Coach Conklin and have it on a pregame show. My guess is he's going to give us the same talk that uh, Randy Sanders did. But this is why we have our play-by-play guys on in the league to get the straight <laughs> talk from Jim Noble and Jim, I'd be remiss. Some of our fans uh, always uh, enjoy when I have you on. They're huge NASCAR fans. They enjoy your work on NASCAR as well. And I enjoy uh, just getting to talk a little football with you. And I hope you have safe travel up here to Johnson City on Saturday. And I'll see you then, my friend. Thanks, man. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing the stadium uh, for the uh, first time in person. And, uh, you know, the one Southern Conference market I know pretty well is Johnson City because that's, like you mentioned, that's where we stay when I do the NASCAR races at Bristol. So uh, looking forward to the trip up the mountain this weekend. All right, Jim. Talk to you then. Thanks, guys. All right, that's Jim Noble, play-by-play man, Wofford Terriers. We'll go over the FCS Top 25 after this time. Out your word from Santa's sidekick on the Rocket Air Sports Network. ETSU fans, there is no more entertaining way to spend your Wednesday nights than with the human soundbite reel, Randy Sanders. It's big boy football. The Buccaneer head coach joins Jay Sandos live at Wild Wing Cafe every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. And if you can't make it to downtown Johnson City to have chicken wings and tater tots with coach, you can listen right here on AM640. All fall long, ETSU head football coach Randy Sanders, Wednesday nights. What time is it anyway? 6 p.m. on the Sports Monster.
I'd say probably a welcome change for most that listen to the show that I finally was able to bump that bumper down like six or eight decibels. It was coming at you screaming pretty much every time, and I made the adjustment after 129 I thought you were going to shorten it. I thought you were going to break the news oh, no, to no, me no. that you no, were, it's an that epic. You haven't, but it, okay. No, it's an epic, so that's not going to happen, but I was able to quiet it down a bit so your face doesn't get blown off when you're listening. That's it, never fun. That was... <laughs> Was that a thing? People's faces oh, yeah. were getting blocked. Okay. Yeah, reports were everywhere. There's a email box that people write into for that specific purpose. It was interesting to hear Jim Noble talk about that South Carolina State game, and this is not a team we're going to touch on in this poll in the FCS Top 25 this week, but they're right outside their re- – well, they're in the receiving votes category. They're right outside the Top 25. I think they're, like, number two in receiving votes. So if you want to take that for what it is and you line up the votes in terms of most to least I think that puts them number 27 in the country so I know early on there was some angst around the Wofford fan base and some eyebrows raised around the Southern Conference about Wofford losing that game but Jim Noble's right like South Carolina State right now is not a team that you can just show up and beat clearly they showed that against Wofford Uh, FCS top 25 stats FCS top 25 North Dakota State, obviously no change there. They were on a bye, so James Madison was able to pick up a few first-place votes. That thanks to their decimation of what was number 24, Elon. The Phoenix actually scored first, hit a big play with Avery Jones collecting a 66-yard touchdown from Davis Cheek, but 45 of the next 48 points came from the Dukes, who had four players rush for 60 yards or more, and four players score on the ground as well. Put up 45 without a passing touchdown. Pretty impressive. Seven first-place votes this week but still being dwarfed by the Bison, 152-7 to in that category. South Dakota State, a bye. They stand pat at number three. Weber State, up a spot because of UC Davis, the previous number four. Their result last week we'll talk about as they plummet to number 12 in just a second. The Wildcats, on the other hand, handle their ranked foe, a home win over what was number 13 Northern Iowa. Weber State up 20 in the first 10 minutes that's always going to be tough to overcome on the road. UNI found their footing, but it was well too late. 29-17, to 17, the final for the Wildcats, even with two losses already. Number four in the country. So two loss teams never out of it, even this early on. Weber State number four in the land. And Villanova still undefeated, up three spots this week to number five with a 16-point win over Maine to their credit. They've scored 30-plus in every game this year. Back-to-back wins over ranked opponents in Towson and Maine, and they've also allowed 17 or less in four of their five games this season. Nova ended this one pretty early, just like Weber State did against UNI. It was 30 to nothing at 20 minutes in. Nova had the lead in that contest. So your top five looks a little bit different. And the Wildcats, obviously known for their prolific play on the hardwood, really showing something on the gridiron early on. Yeah, I think that's maybe the biggest shock. And they got the, I think their first game of the year was maybe Colgate. And, and of course, Colgate had that big year last year. One was kind of wanting to see if that was sort of like UC Davis. Was it a flash in the pan? Were they for real? And Villanova just flat out crushed him, and I think that kind of got him on the scene. And then Villanova is an unfamiliar top 25s, and unfamiliar, uh, unfamiliar to the playoffs. They just seem to put together a year about every five, six years. They put together a solid team. They, they get going. They're not a perennial every year team you think about, but they're all, they are a team that every five or six years can certainly make a run and get in the playoffs. Montana State number six up one spot despite a scare against Northern Arizona. It was 21 nothing after a Hendricks Johnson touchdown. NAU looked like they may have run away with this one early on the road against the Bobcats, and they were up even 17 in the second half, but a 28-point fourth quarter erased a 10-point deficit, entering the final frame. 14 of those points coming in an 18-second span after a fumbled kickoff following a Montana State score. NAU Kind of gave it away, but the Bobcats certainly deserve some credit, too, for staying resilient. Kennesaw State, the Owls drop one spot. They played Reinhardt. You talked about their schedule a bit last week. It's a few cream puffs on it, I'd say. Well, I, let me say this. The spew of hatred that is going on towards Kennesaw State and their schedule Always. is uh, unbelievable. But I think uh, there were Buck fans a few years ago that did it. Now I think Citadel has taken over as the Southern Conference lead as far as going at them. And I do think apparently Kennesaw had – um, I did do a little further research on it. Apparently, Kennesaw State had two teams that bought them out of FCS games because they got an extra FBS games, and uh, one of those teams were the Furman Paladins. They were scheduled to play Furman this interesting. year. I can't remember the other one off the top of my head, but there were two FCS playoff teams from a year ago that bought them out because they wanted to get an extra check from the 
FBS, and then uh, they were scrambling, and at that point in time, the only thing they could get. But if you do look at their schedule, it's by far the weakest of the top ten teams. So a bit of a method to their madness. But I always enjoy Kennesaw State, so I'm going to forget the reasoning behind it because hating on Kennesaw State is always fun. 31-7, to that went over Reinhardt. If you recognize that name, Reinhardt, that's the NAIA school that the Bucks played last year in men's basketball. And ETSU, of course, crushing Reinhardt. This game was weather-shortened between Kennesaw and Reinhardt. Hence the smallish margin of victory if you consider the level of opponent. 31-7 to isn't that huge, a three-score game. The Owls were penalized a bit for dropping that one spot and not finishing that contest, only winning by 24. Montana, number eight, one of the biggest wins of the FCS season. The Grizz go on the road and take down UC Davis, up 10 spots. The biggest climb in the poll this week, and deservedly so. A very convincing 45-20 to win. That's uh, Dalton Sneed throw for 268 yards and five scores. Also 250-plus rushing yards for the Grizzlies. A huge upset. Or is it just marginal, considering Montana's only loss this year was to Oregon. The Aggies now with three losses. What say you? Huge upset or a little bit expected? I think a little bit expected. You know, just my personal opinion on that. I just... Wasn't a believer, still not a believer, so I'm, I'm just going to go, was it wasn't that, that big. Towson, number nine, trying to rebound Shocked. after their loss to Villanova last week, but that uh, was always going to be tough against Florida. 38 nothing loss to the Gators. Let's quickly move on because I'm still bitter about my bold prediction being wrong that supported Towson, and we talked about this game Monday anyway. Still up one spot is Towson to number nine. Rounding out the top ten, Illinois State, a bye for the Redbirds. They needed it to prepare for North Dakota State this coming week. Unfortunate part for Illinois State is that the Bison are also coming off a bye, as we mentioned. I'll get your thoughts on that game in just a bit. Number 11, Central Arkansas. They also were on a bye. Lots of byes this week, but they're up four spots. The most lucrative bye ever. Four spots because of some losses by teams that were above them, including UC Davis, that team that we talked about who are down to number 12. Then UNI at number 13. Uh, that loss to Weber State that we mentioned with the number four Wildcats down four spots from number nine is UNI. Furman up two spots at number 14 for their win over the Bucks. We've talked plenty about that and enough of it this week. But not enough love, I thought. I thought they would. Uh, really? I, I thought they'd move again because there's so many teams that lost sort of in that range. I thought Furman may move up a little more uh, just because, again, there were losses right in that middle of the pack there. North Carolina A&T number 15 won, but an uneventful shutout victory over Delaware State. They are up two spots, though. Then Nichols, another team helping Central Arkansas rise, though this one is one I don't really understand a whole lot. Texas State is not a good FBS team. I get that, but they're still an FBS team, and Nichols was tied at the half with the Bobcats. Now they didn't score the second half, and they lost 24-3, put up just 220 total yards, and... 2-12 on third down, but still a close matchup overall. No love, though, for Nichols, previously number 12 and now number 16. I, no one looks at Texas State, and perhaps some people aren't even aware that Texas State is an FBS team. I think they're in the Sun Belt. Uh, but if you're going up to that level, regardless, like say a FCS team upset in Akron or a UMass uh, in one of your favorite games of last week, uh, or even kept it close, that's still enough of a gap, I feel like, in you know two three score game or a game that's tied at the half to not get penalized or so i thought i mean you'd be better off uh, apparently just not playing and taking a bye yes and then you go up for up it four instead spots. of dropping four so that's exactly that's right that's what you should do southeastern louisiana up two spots thanks to their 44 27 win over northwestern state number 17 this week is sella a 20-point third quarter broke a 17-17 to deadlock between the two teams. And there was no looking back. C.J. Turner, 128 yards, a touchdown through the air. That's in terms of receiving for him, 128 receiving yards of the 344 that Chason Virgil threw for. Youngstown State, number 18, a four-spot rise as the Penguins remained undefeated with a railing of Robert Morris, holding the 1-4 Colonials to 48 yards passing. The wins for Youngstown State this year, Sanford, Howard, Duquesne, now RMU. Number 19, Delaware. Now, I had faith in Tom Flacco this week against Florida. Maybe I should have had faith in Joe Flacco's alma mater of Delaware. They nearly pull off the big upset on the road against Pittsburgh. Took a fourth-quarter touchdown for the Panthers to come from behind and beat Delaware 17-14. to The Blue Hens almost get it done despite just 170 total yards falling just short. They are up one spot and then Maine down eight spots for that loss to Villanova seems a bit harsh but perhaps it's the way they lost down big early and never really in the game against the Wildcats and then another team plummeting to number 21 Jacksonville State down 10 spots this week and this is a team that we're very very familiar with it's just such an up and down season this year for the Gamecocks they were up seven spots after their week two win over Eastern Washington but that win 
quite honestly, doesn't look great now considering where the Eagles sit at 2-3. and three. Uh, And they've lost to Southeastern Louisiana, have the Gamecocks. That's not a bad loss. We just talked about them at number 17. They lost this week to Austin P. gave up 52 points. And offense, ETSU held it just 14 in week four. So that's at least a bit encouraging if you look at opponent in common type things or anything you want to dive into in terms of games played against teams that are notable in the FCS Top 25, that being uh, Austin P. upsetting Jacksonville State. I think upsetting, really. Austin P. kind of looks week in, week out like they can beat anybody, but they also look like they can then drop some games. Well, I, I think the, the biggest question mark is who is Jacksonville State because – when they've gotten in big games, at least that most national people are paying attention to, they've won those. And in a couple of games where maybe people just kind of assumed, well, they dominate the Ohio Valley, they'll go in there to Austin P or, you know, uh, uh, who they lose? It was the Southeast Louisiana to start yep. the year, right? Or they go to Southeast Louisiana, wasn't ranked. You know, ah, it's a team, they'll steamroll over. It seems like the two games that people just chalk them up for W's, they've laid an egg. And the three games that everyone sort of paid attention and thought they – might be the teams that would beat Jacksonville State they've actually beaten so I just can't figure out Jacksonville State and I think main plummeting is more probably about trying to get three lost teams out of the out of the way if, you, if that makes sense just bump them down and which again I you know UC Davis is still I guess the highest ranked right three lost team but other than that I think they're trying to bump everybody down that's got the three it losses. is incredible that you have three losses and you're still ranked number 12 like UC Davis or number uh, 22, like Eastern Washington, that we'll talk about in just a second. Two losses at number four for Weber State. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, I know that some schedules, not all schedules are made equal, right? So you're going to have some top-end opponents on some of those two-loss teams that you say, okay, well, we can't penalize them for that. And then maybe they play another ranked team, beat them handily. And so it is an inexact science when you're ranking all these teams. Uh, but just to see that number and wins and losses – regardless of how they come, our wins and losses. But, just to see two or three in the loss column already and still be ranked high is strange. They don't, uh, at least for Eastern Washington, they, they haven't won a road game. And, and, you know, one was against Washington, you know, Pac-12 team. Uh, you get that. But they lost at Jacksonville State. They lost at Idaho. Uh, and then they've only beaten um, uh, Linwood, Lindenwood, I'm sorry. And then the second team, which was last week, they they beat uh, North Dakota. So I, I'm all like, I don't mind East Washington – being ranked in a couple more weeks when they get kind of rolling. I just think you got three losses this set now that you're maybe not playing that great. Wait till they win a few. Wait till they get above 500. Throw them right back in. They get four and three. They won three in a row, whatever it is. They start racking them up. Put them back in there. I'm just uh, – take them out. That's my theory. A pair of 125-yard rushers for the Eagles this week against North Dakota. Uh, Silas Pereira and Antoine Custer Jr. helped them calm the turmoil on the red turf, if only for a week. That was a 35-20 victory for the Eagles over North Dakota and as you said the only other win against Lindenwood I believe they're division two if they're not division two they're NAIA so finally able to secure an FCS win was Eastern Washington trying to right the ship but Polster's still not buying it down one spot this week SEMO holds at number 23 they had a buy last week Stony Brook they've been in the receiving votes portion of the FCS poll for the entire year they're in the real thing now as they score on a 50 yard run with 11 seconds to go in the most entertaining top 25 FCS game this week 31 27 the win over Rhode Island and Princeton number 25 they actually and this is strange to me they opened the year at number 24 but of course as we know the Ivy League doesn't start play until like late September so unable to stay in the poll since they didn't start till September 21st naturally they dropped out right away because they couldn't win because they weren't playing but they're back now after a couple of dominating wins over Butler and Bucknell each of the first two weeks respectively going back to last year 12 wins in a row now for the Tigers but they also can't participate in the playoffs, so and it, even so they only play ten games, and, and so it's even right. worse this year than normal years because if you got eleven games, they at least play one more week sooner. And then if you look at when Jacksonville State opened up, because they got to play that early game, Youngstown State, it literally is about a month since they're kind of kind of shocking. By the way, I, I think Samford uh, getting votes, Wofford getting votes, Tennessee Tech now four and one. By the way, they they rattled off a couple of wins. Um, Austin Peay's getting votes now. Uh, you just look at some at Citadel getting more votes than Samford uh, and Wofford with three losses. But they have an FBS win, so it's a team you really can't figure out. And you could easily make an argument, right? Like any team, you know, we could be 5-0 and for Citadel not. So I don't – it's just going to be a topsy-turvy league, but there's only one team ranked. It's the Furman Paladins sitting there at 14. I still think it's going to be difficult. Uh, depends on how they, some of the other leagues shake, uh, shake, shape up. And if 
the Southern Conference can have a team kind of get in a roll to win five, six games in the regular season. I think it's going to be very difficult to get multi-teams in. So Central Arkansas up four spots on a bye thanks to a lot of losses of teams above them, namely Jacksonville State, Maine, Nichols, UNI, and UC Davis. In the receiving votes category as well, you talked about uh, Citadel. Elon also dropped out of the poll. Citadel last week was ranked. They drop out, as does Elon. Number three in the receiving votes category right behind South Carolina State is Austin P. So they're on the verge of moving into that poll. Upcoming schedule this week, top 10 battle NDSU and Illinois State. Could James Madison be on upset alert at Stony Brook, number 24 in the country? Though let's remember JMU just beat the previous number 24 in the country handily, Elon, by 35 points last week. And two other ranked matchups, Central Arkansas at Nichols, Youngstown State at Northern Iowa. What do you like of those four? Well, I, I mean, North Dakota State, uh, it's just going to be North Dakota State. I know it's been a nice little story so far for Illinois State. I think that comes crashing down. I think the, the, the best matchup, I actually think it's going to be Youngstown State at Northern Iowa. Youngstown State's off to a, a quick start, a bit, one of the better starts they've had under Bo Pelini. I think Northern Iowa's played some tough competition. They've been willing to go out and play some top-level competition. So curious to see if Youngstown State can keep it rolling and then what the pollsters do if Northern Iowa drops yet another one and becomes a three-loss team. I think James Madison will just roll Stony Brook. That wouldn't be a contest. And last but not least, I think it would be interesting to see Central Arkansas and if you're Nichols, you're a little upset because you played pretty well, I think, in an FBS team and dropped four. I mean, they can make up for that pretty quickly, I think, if they beat Central Arkansas. I hope you know that if North Dakota State or James Madison lose this week, I'm going back and cutting the audio of you just saying that basically Stony Brook has nothing for James Madison and Illinois State has nothing for NDSU. How big of an upset would it be, though? It would be pretty shocking to the FCS world if either of those happened. So uh, I, think you're, I think you're in the right. I think it's safe to say, but just so you know, I'm saying it right now, that audio will be cut. Okay. Just so you don't want to? You're going to ride that fence if you don't you don't agree or you do agree. Oh, I'm not going to give my opinion. That's okay. the beauty of it. Okay. That's the beauty of it. Okay, I'm just making it holds you responsible. I don't have to take any responsibility yeah. for anything. Yeah, it's your I show. Mean, yeah, I, I would assume both those road dogs would be heavily favored. My honestly, I think it would be a bigger upset if Stony Brook beat James Madison really? than Illinois State beat North Dakota State. Which makes sense in terms of the split between where they are in the poll. Well, but also I think Illinois State over time has been a ranked team for many years that people are aware of. That's a league game for them, right? So it's not a show. And it is obviously a league. uh, Is that a league game? I don't think Stony Brook. Are they in CA? Could be. Um, uh, But James Madison, I think looking at just what would shock me more and what would be a bigger upset, I think, of Stony Brook was able to come up in a CAA tilt against James Madison and win that game as opposed to Illinois State. Good Neither's going to happen, though. Write it down. Stats FCS book top it. 25. Book it? Okay. Well, I'm going to book it and then go back and cut it if your book doesn't have the final right chapter. Okay. But you're going to give me no credit if i got to write it. Right? Correct. Okay. All right. I like where your head's at, actually. Yep. You're going to be shocked by that, but I actually like what you're doing there. Uh, gosh, I'm looking at the box score of Wofford and BMI that just popped up on one of our tabs. I didn't realize that it was like 1,070 combined yards last week. There were, I think, all but one Southern Commerce team by themselves had more yardage than ETSU for and had No defense. That's pretty crazy. We'll all talk right. more about Wofford and ETSU and those 501 total yards that Wofford put up last week against BMI on Friday. Yeah, that we will. We'll break down the game fully. We'll also go over the rest of the Southern Conference slate. We'll have our bold predictions on Friday. Santos and the sidekick of the Buccaneer. Sports Network. See ya.